even for a species that's well known, like the indigo, we actually don't know that much about it. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. So, of course. Few things to get out of the way first, poorcitypythons.com. We have t-shirts available as well as uh, we have the last of animals available, but quite frankly, we're not shipping, so maybe you should catch us at your local reptile show. We will be at Gettysburg Reptile Show this weekend. I like how you said your re- local reptile show, our. Yes, our. We're not going to people's <laughs> local like, reptile shows. We're traveling the country. Yeah, we're on tour. <laughs> We'll be at our local Come see us. show in Gettysburg, PA. Spaghettiesburg, PA. This weekend, Saturday, November 23rd. We'll have yes. lots of snakes. Um, we, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, but other than that, you can buy cell phone cases and t-shirts. <laughs> cell phone and cases. Yeah, non, I got to send this one out to Brandon. Non-animal related things on our website. Um, they are all animal related. Wait, sorry, non-animal things. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Um, and I think this uh, Gettysburg show is probably going to be our last show for the year. Yes. Um, and then we'll be back out. In, we just signed up for the Baltimore Repticon show in January, I think. Yes. Um, so we'll be there. So you can catch us in Baltimore. Yes. But other than that, um, our guest today is Dr. David Steen. He is a wildlife scientist for a Florida um, agency, and he is also the founder and executive director of the Alongside Wildlife Foundation. And of course, he is author of the brand new book, Secrets of Snakes. And we are where we have David here to talk about all of the crazy snake myths that you guys may have heard. So, uh, David A. Steen, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I didn't know this was going to be your last show of the year. Wow, what an honor. Oh, sorry. Wait, I meant last, um, our last reptile show that we're doing. Oh, on okay. Not okay. Our, sorry. You <laughs> will be the down. last one of the week, though. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and it is Monday, so that is pretty important. <laughs> we're just so, calling it a week early. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we caught you actually on Instagram, but I read in the book, in the beginning of the book, it said that you pretty much started writing from a, a blog that you were doing. Yeah, I'm, you know, a wildlife researcher, and that's what my training has mostly been. But early on, I decided that there's really not much point in studying these things if you're only talking to other scientists about it. So, yeah, really early on, I started with the newspaper column, and that turned into a blog, just natural history, science type stuff. Awesome. And how have you gone as far as transitioning to all the different media forms? I mean, you were really big on Twitter. And now you're on Instagram and all that stuff. Can you explain a little bit about that? It kind of sounds like an insult, right? Oh, he's really big on Twitter. No. (laughs) Yeah. You know, my secret is I like using these different platforms. And so I spend a lot of time on my own. And so it's not that much of a switch to just kind of go into science communicator mode and and answer people's questions. It's something that I enjoy doing. Okay. So I know the focus of this podcast episode is about the book but you know i have to backtrack a little bit and ask how did you get into reptiles and you know the quintessential question 
Sure. I've, I've kind of had it easy. I've always known what I'm interested in. And really as far back as I can remember, I was looking through streams and picking up rocks and rolling over logs to look for bugs and beetles and lizards and things like that. And somewhere along the way, it turned into a career. So I, I feel pretty lucky. And then not a lot of people when they are, you know, when you get into scientists and stuff like like not many people are open to communicating i mean especially on the level that you're doing <laughs> you're saying no. are you calling scientists uh not outgoing <laughs> no but i feel i feel like if you if you read this book you are so you are so detail oriented but at the same time you present it in a way that anyone can understand so like, what do you feel as far as what draws you to like wanting to communicate science? Because not, you know, plenty of people are doing the research, but not many people have the patience to go and communicate it to, you know, regular people. Sure. I don't know. My kind of secret is just that I talk the same to everybody, uh, whether it's other scientists or people who aren't scientists. And when I give presentations, it's mostly pictures and I'm trying to tell a story. And people are saying, oh, you gave a good presentation to these scientists or you gave a good presentation to these um, uh, non-scientists. And, and like I said, my secret is it's always it's always the same. I'm just trying to tell a good story. Uh, but it, it's something I'm interested in. Uh, I, I enjoy spreading the word about these creatures that I think have a bad reputation. Uh, I enjoy talking to people and hearing their stories about them. And that, that's really the secret. It doesn't feel a lot like work. And if it did, I probably wouldn't be able to spend that much time on it. And for a lot of people, they don't enjoy it. And that's okay. Uh, and that explains why a lot of people uh, just haven't spent the time that, that I do. But, you know, I, I've, I'm lucky. I'm privileged. I've had the opportunity to have a great education and work with a ton of great people. And, and I want to share that knowledge and that information with people who may not have had that opportunity as well. Absolutely. And we won't dog on you too much for going to Auburn. But uh, so, <laughs> so if you don't know, I went to Good. Alabama, she went to LSU. So SEC mm, okay. house. So at least we're all kind of on the same team. <laughs> That's right. How'd they do this weekend? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Our quarterback lost a hip, I think. But uh, they grow back. Yeah. I don't know. So um, as far as the book goes, what made you uh, write a book? I mean, obviously you got a blog, but what made you go all out and go for the book? Yeah, I think the blog is probably the grandparent of the book. And a lot of the different chapters were kind of born out of uh, blog posts. And, you know, I've just noticed early on that there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about snakes. And I thought that's where I could really make a difference, uh, where, I, where I thought my angle could be. Uh, and that's that's... That's what I did. People, it kind of resonated with people. With the blog posts, do you have one central theme? Did it always change? Because I know with our podcast, we kind of like, oh, we'll go for a month. And we're like, we only want to have conservationists or we only want to do like this. And it's constantly changing. And I'm assuming the blog posts similar. Yeah, it's true. You know, the, the secret to keeping the blog going, my secret for keeping the blog going is just write what I feel like writing about and not trying to conform to anyone's expectations. Because if I think if I held myself to that kind of standard, it would just feel like homework and I would just lose the motivation. So I just did what I felt like. And sometimes that was a story that happened while doing field work. 
sometimes it was just criticizing something that uh, showed up in the news. And a lot of them are just kind of myths and misconceptions about snakes. Is there anyone that jumps out to you as being absolutely ridiculous that you've heard? Because I mean, there's a lot of them, but is there any one that you like in particular? The one that really jumps out to me in particular is the giant dead rattlesnake. It's a really common email. People will be holding a snake up. Let me see if I get this right. On a stick. And so as you can see, my hand looks really giant, right? For anyone watching. And it's the same kind of um, camera trick that people use with dead snakes or when they're fishing, they'll hold the fish up here to look big. But for some reason, it just does not register with a lot of people when they're looking at these pictures that it's basically a hoax. And so I do have one blog post that has all the really common snake pictures that would do the rounds in the email. And I would just explain that rattlesnakes don't get 100 pounds. They don't get 12 foot long. And here are the camera tricks. And that's probably the most popular blog post that's been viewed like a million times, something like that. And I think one thing you said, like connected finally, because obviously we've heard all these things and forced perspective is like a, a huge thing, especially if you're in any of the rattlesnake groups and, you know, roundup people do it all the time. And on Instagram. Yeah. And then what you said is that like a rattlesnake, say they average six foot, say a human averages six foot, you know, there may be a giant one in a million human being that's nine feet, but the chances of you seeing a 10 foot rattlesnake are pretty slim. Yeah. We're all constrained by our genes. And uh, yeah, I think the example I use in the blog is that, okay, Shaquille O'Neal is what, eight feet tall, something like that. Imagine Shaquille O'Neal standing on Shaquille O'Neal's shoulders. And that's how long some people are uh, thinking these snakes get. And it's just, it's just so outside of the realm of possibility. And a lot of people just don't know what's reasonable and, and what's not. And that analogy about people is how I try and get people to, like you said, connect with that. Yeah. And I, and I think as people who are in snakes or even we are on the ground, you know, people ask snake questions. Whenever you're the snake guy, people always bring you the most outlandish <laughs> stuff, of course. But, you know, some things is the fact that you may be able to identify a snake by vertical pupils or round pupils, what is venomous, non-venomous. And oftentimes our answer is no, it's just the ones that hunt at night and the ones that hunt during the day are diurnal or nocturnal, but you kind of stray away from that. Can you kind of explain that? Yeah. I mean, it's really tempting to go with these tips and tricks for distinguishing between venomous species and non-venomous species. And, and I do it too, but sometimes I think the context is lost and people think that these are a set of rules, like a checklist that you can go down and determine what a species is. And, and nature is just a lot messier than that. And yeah, so when we're talking about vertical pupils, in general, vipers tend to have the vertical pupils. In general, the non-venomous don'ts, but there's exceptions either ways. And it's, you know, scientists don't automatically know the answer as to why the snake pupils look like that. But the current thought is that snakes that hunt at dawn and dusk, um, that physical structure of the eye helps them see better during those times. And so that's why they got it. Isn't that been said for cats? Isn't that? I feel like I've heard because. Okay, now I feel like I should check this before I say it. It makes but I, sense. 
I thought I, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure I've heard their eyes are like that because they have better vision at night. And their eyes are like that, and you notice their pupils I change. Think, and can't cats like actually do a real? T- I don't know anything about cats. I, I feel like someone's told me that about cat eyes and why they're <laughs> the way they are. But that, I mean, that makes sense. Different. That makes sense to me. Okay, cool. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Fact check it in the chat. Where's our cat people at? Uh, wow, that rhymes. Mm. I think it's very interesting how you know you guys brought up that people who don't know much about snakes have no like realm of possibility of what things can be but then i think what they want from snake people is very clear-cut black and white answers and i'm like you don't know you have no idea of anything you think oh that there can be a six you know 16 foot rattlesnake but then you want me to give you like very absolutes absolutes. and it it's like contradictory almost like everything's a possibility but it, it's contained there's you know boundaries to it all but i think they want us to give them all these clear-cut things and i'm not sure why that is yeah it can be tricky sometimes when i get questions people are just genuinely curious and they want information other times people are just wanting me to confirm what they think is okay. true and that can be the that, those are a little tricky especially when they're talking about something that i would regard as, as a myth yeah, and then you, you almost get put up against, you know, that person's uncle and someone you love and you're just a random guy <laughs> they just met. And, you know, my uncle swears he yeah. got chased by the cotton mouth and all that good stuff. Yeah. So I'll say, well, I wasn't there, but that would surprise me if I saw it. And let me explain why. And that that's a little bit harder to argue with. Right. And, you know, something that obviously cotton mouths do is they open their mouth, give you that awesome threat display, but more so on the side of like a pituophis versus a rattlesnake. I mean, some people say that that's mimicry and some people say that that is just a, you know, defensive behavior that they both happen to have. Uh, what's the line there? I mean, what should we tell people? Because I mean, we have pituophis. I mean, people ask us that, and I'm not sure what the you know what the right answer is. I don't think it's technically mimicry uh, when it's coming to shaking a tail or hissing. I think that these, in general, speaking in general, are general features of snakes, and then some species have just really nailed it, really, um, just really good at it. Pine snakes are one example, uh, but when it comes to you know shaking your tail. Lots of different species do it. Species do it even though they've never, you know, lived alongside rattlesnakes before. And so that's kind of evidence that it's probably not technically mimicry. Yeah, I guess if you could think of uh, an eastern hognose didn't learn to spread its neck out by from a cobra at any point. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a perfect example. Yeah. And, and they definitely be, don't do it awfully well. but. <laughs> Yeah, we can tell the difference. But, you know, spread and spread and adders and, uh, is a really common name for them down here. Um, but yeah, when you think about it, it doesn't make sense for it to be mimicry. And that's, that's a little di- bit different than what we see with the coral snakes and those other species that have that uh, banding pattern. Um, and that was kind of evolution over time. Predators uh, of snakes that were colored and banded like the coral snakes they live to pass on their genes. And today we've got those nice scarlet king snakes and scarlet snakes. 
Right. And then and then on that same subject, you see every once in a while on Facebook, someone posts up like a uh, a melanistic coral snake or a coral <laughs> snake with like just the colors are off. So, you know, red touches black, black. To, you know, the rhyme yeah, doesn't the rhyme doesn't work. No, and that's that's the thing. A lot of people don't realize when they when we tell them these tips and tricks, they think they're rules, mm-hmm. and they'll look at the snake and be like, "Oh, well, I guess it's not venomous." And you know, and then you touch I, I it, like a little bit of gray area, yeah, and you kill a fella. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate, but a lot of um, a lot of what we see is just a lot of fear out there from being uneducated. So. I mean, how do you personally, as far as I'm sure you have a lot more experience on the ground trying to convince people, you know, snakes aren't exactly a bad thing. So how do you get past that wall, especially in places where myths are so prevalent, prevalent, <laughs> prevalent? You know, I just, <laughs> you know, I, I talk about why I appreciate and value snakes and I talk about how I come to the conclusions that I do and the evidence that I need. And, and that's, that's a conversation and it's not telling somebody they're wrong and what they saw was impossible. It's just explaining why I believe the things that I do. And that's harder to take offense to. That's harder to kind of put up a wall to that. And we may not end up agreeing on everything at the end of the conversation, but it's not as confrontational. Right. And can we talk a little bit about the fact that, I mean, this book is not only dispelling all these myths and and just because, you know, snake owners may know that, you know, red touches black doesn't always work and stuff. And in Central America, you know, you can get real dangerous, but you could still absolutely learn so many things from this book. I mean, me just reading it, I've I learned a tremendous amount and it's just the the backup of all these um, myths I used knew before, but I get more background so I can explain it better to people. I feel so, and also what I love about it is the fact that there's almost pictures on every single page, and it's not because I can't read, which is somewhat true. <laughs> to but be I'm, clear, <laughs> yeah, to be clear, I mean I could read a book without <laughs> images, but it is much better when it is reinforced by images. So can you explain kind of your decision making process on that? such a long statement. I feel like I'm talking, no, I've been talking, I've been sick and I said I wasn't going to talk and I've been talkative. And you're like, yeah. And I feel like there's a question in the beginning of that. And can I ask the question that responds to the first half of your monologue? Sorry, I ranted. Um, Talking, you know, you were saying like, there's a lot for snake owners to learn. And so my question is, when you were writing this book, or, you know, just in the early stages of it, did you have a target audience in mind? Or did you, because you're so good at communicating to the masses, did you want it to be, you know, experienced snake keepers, everyone? Or did you kind of, yeah, who's your target audience? Sure. Yeah, I wanted as many people as possible to get something out of the book. But I'd say that the main audience were people that were interested in snakes but had no formal experience or education with them. That's kind of the bulk of it. But I I did want to throw in stories and uh, some of the science and the the background that would appeal to to other people as well. And although the target audience was people that don't know much about snakes, I also thought it would resonate with, with people that did because they're hearing all the same questions that I do all the time. And maybe now instead of just reinventing the wheel, 
explaining because a lot of these questions it's not just that it's false it's that there's this misunderstood premise and sometimes you just don't want to go into the, the detail now you can just hand your friends this book and uh and save everybody some time uh so that that's that's the audience people who aren't snake experts but anybody that's interested in snakes i hope can get something out of the book yeah especially if you're in the north american you know snakes i mean this has amazing photographs what was the number one thing you learned oh it's a good question what is the number one thing i learned Mm -hmm. well besides besides the rattlesnake thing which i think is a great way to explain it to people i think also i didn't between mimicry and defensive behavior, I had mentioned um, different topics for us to cover because I felt like I had once had a cookie cutter response to that. And I'm glad that I am able to change it to where if someone holds me or if I hand someone a snake and they ask if it can bite, you know, he has a chapter on that as well. It's literally, there's literally a chapter about, every ridiculous question that we would get at a reptile show. So do we just need to copy pages from the book? And when we're at the next show and people ask us questions and like how to not be a a smart ass response. Buy this book, buy this book, buy this book. (laughs) Yeah. I'd be be happy if you did that. But uh, (laughs) uh, I don't mean to say that my way is the only way I'm sure you've come up with lots of creative ways of answering the same questions over the years. Uh, But yeah, it's no coincidence that the, the questions in here are the same ones that you get because that those that's how I pick the chapters. It's basically the 29 most common questions, myths, and misconceptions. And and online with the amount of pictures, the chapters are like usually two to three pages. So they're also perfect for people with an attention span. Exactly. You know? So like there's <laughs> so this is like such an, an easy read and a fun read. And now to get back to the actual photograph question. Yeah. So what was your process of picking and finding and all of that of the photographs? Okay. Well, in your mind, imagine a typical snake book. What do you see on the cover? A snake. <laughs> like, well, that's true. <laughs> you got me. You got me there. It, in my mind, I think of like this is rattlesnake and it's reaching out and striking and these things are so scary right and this is not what snakes naturally look like this is what snakes they've been hauled out they're scared they're threatened and they're just really in this unnatural situation and what i really wanted to do is encourage an appreciation for snakes as they really are just hanging out doing their own thing living their own lives and so i was really looking for photographers that took pictures of snakes as they found them and not posed. And uh, there's a there's a there's a ton of people on Instagram that I follow and I appreciate. And you know, there's there's a few dozen different photographers. So I'm not going to insult anybody by going down the list and forgetting <laughs> one or two people. But uh, I'm really really um, appreciative of the photos that they were able to contribute because they just communicated that essence of snakes better than I could just through the words. And I think part of that is the fact that you could have picked like these crazy striking species that 
you know, North America is known for, you know, particularly some species of rattlesnakes and things in West Texas, like Alterna, stuff like that thing that pop out at you. But most of the pictures are of like Nerodia and, (laughs) and like Eastern Diamondbacks and stuff that, I mean, herp nerds and people who are living in the area in which most of these myths derive from, you know, those are the animals that they're going to see. So I appreciate like sticking true to the essence, you know, kind of like how you described. Yeah, thanks for noticing that. I'm really proud of the fact that there's a southern water snake, Nerodia fasciata, on the cover of the book. This may be the first time that's ever happened. And then <laughs> there's a plain bellied on the back. But I, these these animals are really fascinating. And I think they're just overlooked by these snazzy stuff. And I just wanted to get into the snakes that people are really interacting with. So there's a ton of DK's brown snakes. There's kind of water snakes, copperheads. And there's some exciting ones in there too, but I, I really wanted this to be not this comprehensive book of every cool snake you've ever seen, but the ones that are most likely to be part of our lives. And did you write? Did you write all of the text of the book first, and then add the picture and pictures in after, or like did you seek? Well, on top of that, did you seek out specific pictures to go with the text if you wrote the text first? A little bit of all of the above. Uh, most of the book was written, but I, before it was done, I started reaching out to some of these photographers because it's a long process of getting photos, getting the permissions, getting all the signatures. Um, and then so definitely there were certain photos that I know I needed to get for certain chapters. Like when we talk about the shape of a snake's head, you know, I really needed to get a picture of a non-venomous. Oops. This is true. <laughs> yeah, it's off. We're, we've been doing it for a while, and I still get confused <laughs> the reversal. Uh, so definitely certain specific pictures I needed to get. But then after that, I just was looking for cool pictures of snakes hanging out, hiding, eating. Um, and, and that's how I filled out the rest. Yeah, and then you even have some, like, illustrations in there as well. Yeah, Siren Dollinger uh, wrote or created the artwork that introduces the three sections. I wanted to give it kind of a little bit of that natural history, old field book style. And she really helped with that. Speaking of that, did you have um, book inspirations? I mean, I know a lot of this came from your own blog post, but like, did you have books that you read that really, you know, you called upon or thought about when you were making this book? Well, there's definitely books that were really influential to me. And, and one that jumps out is Swap Walker's Journal by David Carroll. And what he did, he's a real old school naturalist. He, he basically went out and just made these beautiful field notes and drawings and observed what happens with these ponds, uh, particularly spotted turtles and spotted salamanders and what they do over the course of the year. And I will never go so far as to say that that's what my book is like, but th- that's just kind of the an influential book to me. And those are the kinds of things that are in the back of my mind. And I wish I could create something like that. Absolutely. And are you, as far as from a book perspective, are you looking to do more more books in the future? Is this going to become that's a like thing? That's like the last question, oh, babe. Sorry. That's not a question in the middle of it. <laughs> well, you're in charge, apparently. <laughs> I'm sorry. Should I, should I answer? I don't know. I mean, no, you got to no. ask the boss. Okay. Um, well, you can edit it later and splice this <laughs> at the end if you like. 
<laughs> but I've been really pleased with the reception to this book. Uh, it was a lot of work, but it was also fun too. And it's really fun to talk to everybody like you to, about the book. And so I think I am motivated to write Secrets of Turtles, The Science Beyond the Myths. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> it's a little too early, a little early to pre-order, but maybe over the next year I'll, I'll be working on that. I'm also interested in writing a book about science communication. Uh, this would be more for scientists and uh, other folks that are interested in um, doing some things like I do on Twitter and on the blog and just, you know, how do you do it? People are always asking me for tips and tricks, and my philosophy. So I think it might be neat to have that all in one place. Yeah, that's awesome. And how would you go about, as a regular citizen, or even as some... Is he not a regular citizen? I don't know. As a normal <laughs> civilian person who's into snakes, or even someone who, you know, is like yourself, or is a biologist or something like that. I mean, what can you do to get out there and start communicating and start, you know... It's like the first Getting step. out positive, yeah. Yeah, everybody's different, and they all have their strengths and their interests and their passions. And so for me, I really like going online and talking about these things. So that's what I do. Other people might like going to their local clubs or cafes or whatever, you know, their libraries and giving presentations with live animals, things like that. Um, you know, maybe it's just a matter of talking to your family. That's, that's a start. Often that's the hardest thing to do, talking to your friends and family about these things. Uh, so I guess I encourage people to first think about what they're passionate about, what their strengths are, and think about something that they feel that they can stick with. Because that's really the secret is to find something that you can stay with over the long term. And, and that's how you start getting this reputation and getting your profile uh, boosted. All right. Sorry to skip around, but I had another, I wanted to talk about snakes again for a second. That's and, what I'm here for. And so I had mentioned in an email, you had talked about how cotton mouse in the book, they share different nature as far as being arboreal or staying on the ground, depending on where they were. So usually as snake people keeping snake in captivity, we like to say this animal does this, this, and this, but we don't realize that in nature, there may be situations in which their behavior is altered. So can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the cotton mouse? Sure. Yeah, I mean, like, we're a species, and we tend to do some things more than often, but you can't just paint us all with a broad brush. And, you know, I think it's safe to say a lot of people that have a firsthand experience with snakes and other creatures, they can have personalities, and they have different tendencies. And so let's not write them all off and say they're like these automaton robots, and they only do one thing. Um, but certainly also in response to different environmental conditions, they might act differently. Um, so yeah, this, the story that you're referring to is cottonmouths will drop into your boats and it's really common in the Southeast, but down here, they really don't climb trees at all, let alone fall into your boat, which is generally an unwise thing to do. And you're Another, not just making an assumption. This is based off of thousands of observations. Yeah. If you look for snakes, cottonmouths in the Southeast, you know, less than 1% might be higher than this far off the ground. Uh, so that that was something that's 
a myth. And there's been papers published about this. However, if you go further north in their range, they actually, it's not that unusual for them to be climbing trees. Now, they're not at the top of the trees, but they're, they're, they're off the ground. And in some cases, high enough to fall into your boat, although that would be extremely unusual for them to climb that high and also fall into your boat. But I think it's a matter of environmental conditions. Uh, in the north, it's going to be generally cold. And these are ectothermic animals, right? Cold-blooded. They rely on the external environment to regulate their body temperature. They may be more inclined to be getting some of these basking spots that are up high and get that warmth. They don't need to do that in the south. It's hot. It's too hot. Um, but even now I'm making generalizations because if you go down to Louisiana, what happens in those swaps? The water levels fluctuate a lot. And so sometimes you'll see cottonmouths in bushes and branches and trees up there too. That might be an adaptation to that changing water level. So hard to make generalizations. Absolutely. And you just looked over. That was the sound of uh, the Ruth and I taking a, a dump. That Sorry, was a they're weird just face. all moving so, right, so much right now. Like, <laughs> no, but the MBK was moving at the top also. And uh, someone's shedding down there. Uh, well, so Pituophis are always going, going to the bath. Yeah, to be clear, that was the pine snake. That was not me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> For anybody listening at home. True. If they're listening, they didn't see which direction my face was looking. Um, I was looking at our snake rack to our left. But why do, I mean, it seems like the the cotton mouth gets all of the bad stories. And a seemingly a snake that is extremely passive seems to have all the stories in which, you know, it's chasing people, it's falling out of trees and all that good stuff. Why is that? What's your theory? I don't know. I think, I think people are just, just well... Well, I think it's notoriety. I think rattlesnake, cottonmouth, cobra. If you ask someone who knows nothing about snakes to name the three names of snakes that they know, I feel like those are going to be and they're the going top to. three. So then they're going to get the most bad press if that's what people, you know, those are and their names. And they're fearful of it. And yeah. they get completely they're just, mistaken. Right. For they're mistaken snakes. and confused. But those are the names, you know, so many. Literally at the snake show today or on White Plains, a guy asked me, now, what kind of snake does like this? <laughs> literally, like, <laughs> I was like, what? And that could be voice? <laughs> yes. It was I mean, Halloween. <laughs> it was just a weird New Yorker, not New Yorker accent. It was weird. It was like country New Yorker, which was, and I, my uh, interpretation of that was probably terrible. But he was like, what raises, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, my corn snakes do that. Like, but I'm assuming you're probably thinking of a cobra, but, and so just things like that. I'm like, what a blanket, blanket statement that you just kind of put on so many different snakes. And I think Cottonmouth gets the fall for a lot and of snakes. And I think they also, there's also like so many different names these things go to. And so, or, you know, that people call them and there's so many misconceptions just based on the fact that they don't even know what animals they're really even talking about sometimes. Yeah. 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 You reminded me of a, a, a myth that I've heard a few times and it, it goes back to Vietnam and some people will say they were in Vietnam or they had a friend who was in Vietnam or a family member and they were in a helicopter and the helicopter was taking off and a snake 
rose out of the trees and was just at eye level looking at them in the in the helicopter at 20 or 30 feet and what kind of snake would that have been yeah. that was a berm clearly, clearly. <laughs> an ele- uh, elevating one yeah <laughs> yeah but it's great cre- i mean yeah you and go to things like you know say the milk snake who they thought was drinking out of a cow oh, okay that's what i was about to say Everyone dumb is- question right here i know where milk snake comes from i know where corn snake comes from where does the name cottonmouth come from <laughs> Yeah, ask the herpetologist, not me. Okay, I've got, oh, a, I've got a good picture here. I need bookmarks in these things. I don't know why the hell they're called a water moccasin. I know why they're called a cottonmouth. I don't know why people call them a water moccasin. Next that one. seems like a silly, uh, a silly name. Know. My brain goes to illegals when I think of cottonmouth. Mm. <laughs> oh, you should have you should have named their said different words. <laughs> Illegal substances. Illegal there substances. You go. Not illegals. <laughs> so here's a cottonmouth, and it is demonstrating its famous defensive display by opening up its mouth, which is often white, and and that's how they get their name, cottonmouth. When they're threatened, they'll they'll open it up. Okay. Yeah. And it's like, you know, how strikingly white is that compared to, say, you know, our Yeah, the inside of our other one. Right. And is there, but is there another snake that has a stark white of a mouth? Not that I'm aware of. And there are a few snakes that will just kind of sit there with their mouth open. Too. Yeah. You don't yeah, want that, to stick your finger in there. Definitely not. Yeah, that doesn't seem like, uh, it's not something that we see an awful lot, I feel like, in North America as far as that mouth. I'm, is there any snake in the same range as the cottonmouth that does anything like that? Not that I'm thinking of. I don't think so. And then no. also, you you mentioned that that study where you know they basically took boots and stepped on cottonmouths and stuff <laughs> like that. So can you talk a little bit about like the natural behavior, you know, other than that defense? Yeah. Um, you know, they've got this bad reputation. And if they bit people as much as we were afraid of, we'd all be dead. I mean, they would just be chasing us down and killing us all the time. We'd be gone. Uh, and so just to kind of show off how reluctant these snakes actually are to bite, a couple researchers, like you said, they stepped on cows, they had a fake arm they would touch them with. They just reported a truck, and it was really infrequently. And it's basically, if you're just minding your business, there's a really slight chance that you're going to be bit by a cottonmouth. And even if you try to pick it up and step on it, it might not even happen. Although, don't try this at home. <laughs> yeah, and we may need a few test subjects to do the live human trials <laughs> where you actually yes. have to pick it up. Maybe some of the commenters that I'm seeing. <laughs> right there. <laughs> I'm reading through some of them as we speak. <laughs> so be careful, commenters out there. That's right. He's watching you. <laughs> <laughs> How does this work? People are asking questions or they're chatting amongst themselves? It's 90% chatting amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I don't think a question has popped up yet. Usually when someone... You guys can ask questions, though. When someone asks a yeah. question, we'll usually like, repeat it um, to you or we'll, we have a way to like post it live. Uh, but no one's okay. actually 
<laughs> people are just saying white mouth, white mouth. Yeah. Okay. Well, questions so, are welcome if you're if you're out there. Jump on in. Um, did you have another one? No, go one? ahead with so, your question from before. Uh, I think I don't know why, but I really liked the dedication in this book. And I never, ever look at dedications. I always skip over it because it's usually to, like, you know, the, someone's child or cousin or <laughs> aunt that I don't know or care about. Wow. Um, but I liked your dedication. And this is lame, but I want to read it just for the people that don't have the book yet. I thought it was interesting. Or do you want to read it? It's your book. No, no, go for it. <laughs> I've read it enough. Um, there are tons of danger noodles, note ropes, and long boys throughout our streams, our forests, and our backyards. They silently live alongside us every day, but could not care less about what we think. This book is dedicated to all the people wanting to learn more about them anyway. Um, I just liked your inclusion of 21st century um, <laughs> terms, but also bring it back to, you know, nature and everything like that. Um, and I'd actually never heard long boys yeah i like that one <laughs> i only knew danger noodles that's like no boy books. with an eye yeah <laughs> i I, uh, I like to say that this is the book the first snake book in, written by and for extremely online people and they're the ones that'll that will get the long boy and the note rope jokes uh, but i do admire people that they just they're scared of these snakes but they're fascinated by them and they do want to learn more about them and they're not doing it because of you know, something that they're going to get out of it. They just want to appreciate these creatures. And so, yeah, that is who this book is for. And it kind of, it kind of sets the tone in a way though, also that you're not taking everything way too serious. Yeah. There's a danger there because I have a PhD. I used to be a professor, you know, I'm this educated, uh, herpetology researcher. I don't want this is some stuffy academic book. I want them to know, early on it's it's written for everybody yeah and i think was it intentional as far as um i know you mentioned at one point that you don't you're not going to mention things like subspecies is that because you didn't want to get into it or because you straight up just don't care or believe in subspecies uh, <laughs> <laughs> it really you know it really does make my life difficult when People want to know what they found and they've got the name of a subspecies. And so they say that name and I say, no, it's not that it's this, but actually it's the same species. It's just, you know, it's more than most people want to know. And if, if somebody is really uh, interested in subspecies and knows the nuances of the scientific naming system, then I might be more inclined to talk about it. But when it's just to somebody, what is the snake in my yard? I don't have time to, talk about the difference between a and a northern a common and a lake erie water snakes just more than anybody wants to know yeah and i think that you call and particularly for someone who's in the south you call timber rattlesnakes timber rattlesnakes even though i'm sure most people in the south call them cane breaks that's right and i hope i don't offend anybody by doing so but you know that's the quote unquote official common name and one of the things i really wanted to do is be consistent so if i'm talking about one species there i want people to know i'm talking about the same species elsewhere and so i really like some of the colorful names like cane break and moccasin swamp lion and you know everything else you can think about but when it comes to 
actually clearly communicating about what these animals are, then I, I really try and be consistent and defensible. Right. Yeah. And I think that throughout the whole thing, you say, yeah, you say the same thing. It's always a cotton mouth. It's not, a, you don't interchange anything and it makes it pretty simple and straightforward. And there is an animal that, of course, like you said, you know, it's not exactly the Nerodias of the world. It is a large, impressive, you know, beautiful animal, the indigo snake. And you did some work on some indigo. So can we talk about that? Sure. Uh, I was at Auburn for years. As you mentioned, War Eagle. And commenters on the side, feel free to sh- give me a War Eagle shout. Uh, then I'll know they're listening. They actually uh, commented on your Mississippi State Cup, so I feel like you're cheating on Auburn. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they're really paying attention. Uh, this was a gift. I gave a talk to the Mississippi uh, Veterinary Club, the Wildlife Veterinary Club, and so I gave a gift. Um, because you had to go to happened. Starkville. It was their, their penance. <laughs> they were <right>. like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It was a very nice visit, and they were very nice people. Um, <laughs> Sorry, we got you off the topic. <laughs> okay, so uh, indigo snake, it's a federally threatened species. It's on the Endangered Species Act. Uh, it used to range through Georgia and Florida, Alabama, over to Mississippi, uh, but it's knocked back. It's in a lot of trouble. It got knocked out of Mississippi, knocked out of Alabama, knocked out of the Florida panhandle. And so now it's mostly in Southeast Georgia and the Florida peninsula. But as with any species on the Endangered Species Act, the, 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 the goal is to get it off the act. And we do that by meeting the protection goals and the recovery goals. And one of the goals is to establish the indigo snake where it went extinct. And that includes Alabama, that includes the Florida panhandle. So I have been involved in a couple ongoing reintroduction efforts in those two states to try and bring back viable populations of, of this animal. And, uh, you know, it's too early to say, you know, we're talking about wanting this population to be around 50, 100 years from now. Can't really say if that's going to happen, but there are encouraging signs. It does look like the animals are finding each other and, and uh, successfully reproducing too. They're producing fertile eggs. So that's really encouraging. All right, so I don't want to ruin the fun of it with the species talk again, but they were uh, – so the, the indigo was once – it was split into two species, and now it's generally accepted that it is one species again, right? Yes. There was a paper that looked at the genetics and said that – and the, a little bit of the morphology, and it said that there was compelling evidence that they should be split up. Uh, and then I was in full disclosure, I was an author on the paper that uh, refuted that study. And, you know, long story short, felt the genetic evidence was not actually that compelling when you look at uh, kind of a broader picture. And when you look at the different scales that they were talking about, the, the story wasn't that clear. So I think it's safe to say that the general consensus is now there's one Eastern Indigo. There's still the Texas Indigo and the other ones in Central America too, but in the Southeastern U.S., there's there's the one. Okay. I don't know if you know the answer to this, and it's kind of an aside, but as far as like taxonomy and stuff like that, like, you know, you kind of like what we're talking about, you see these papers get released that say this way, you see, you know, you see both. Is there like a protocol for the amount of people that have to like, 
of smart people <laughs> that agree, have to disagree. agree before it's like really stated a thing. Yeah. I mean, anyone can publish a paper, right? right? And make the case, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have to agree with every single paper. And there is actually a committee of smart people that uh, decide which they think is the most compelling case. And, you know, it's never like case closed, settled. Science is a process and we're always changing, but they do decide what is the most compelling case at any given time. And they're part of the Society for the Study of Amphibians and Reptiles. And fortunately, they publish their list online. So you can check to see what the, what the latest is. Okay. I feel like sometimes I see a paper come out and I'm just like, oh, they just bitch slapped that other person with science real quick. And like, you know, when you refute someone else's, I feel like that's a big deal. And you need to um, like, what do you what is the weight of that? And how do you make sure that you're (laughs) and make sure that you're taken serious? Well, you know, well, stick to the science and, you know, you can let the science speak for itself if it's a, if it's a compelling case then then that's that's gonna do it but I, I see that that Ryan in the comments he brought up uh, Raymond Hoser who's kind of famous like for we, we usually don't say his name but <laughs> okay okay oh, okay that's why the that's in, that's why Voldemort is in quotes <laughs> okay so the guy from Australia who shall not be named um, Clearly, you all already know this, but maybe there's some people that don't. Uh, He's kind of famous for publishing papers um, that other scientists, I'm I'm being really diplomatic here, uh, do not have a very high standard. And he'll often name these creatures after his pets and his family members uh, who all happen to have his same last name. Um, Some people say that this is taxonomic vandalism because autistic them is archaic and old and it's like okay this was published it must be good True. it must right. be solid and and uh that's not necessarily the case anymore lots of people can publish there's thousands of journals and so we really need to be kind of just dis- um uh, we need to discriminate between the studies that we want to follow and, and those that we don't and that's why that committee can be helpful and sorry ryan for saying saying the name <laughs> i feel like Every smart person should be required to put like an at the end of their uh like study or article like this has not been like what you- substantiated by the smart people committee. <laughs> like or it has. Like if the committee was like, okay, we you know, we're on board with this. Like, well yeah, and, and like, Hoser slips like- them in sometimes. Like I think he has like the white lip python, one of them are named Hoser I. Uh, um so he has some that have stood. And I don't know how that happens. I'm not anyone. Someone sees it. Well, but. someone's like you, and they see it like, oh, this must be true. And then they, they tell their friends. Well, they're friend not like me because I am not. Because you wouldn't. Well, all. not on that specific <laughs> thing, but other, you know, you, you see some articles, you're like, oh, well, okay, this looks like a smart person thing. And there's a lot of smart <laughs> things said. So I'm going to go with it. And someone might see the hoser. I'm like, oh, sounds smart. So this person looks like they know what they're doing. So I'm going to tell my friend, like, oh, this is this. And Word of mouth. <laughs> that was a very yeah, good I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not that he doesn't know what I mean, he's doing. I mean, he he has done, he's on the right track, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. he, he gets it. But I, I think that he doesn't always follow the same standard that he would for, for every snake. But um, 
sometimes you hit a bullseye. Uh, but but if a paper is published in a reputable journal, it is peer reviewed. Um, and basically what they're saying is that this is sound science. It may not be the soundest science, it may not be the most compelling case, but this is okay as yeah. its unit. Um, and that's what that's when those committees come in handy. And I didn't mean to pull us into this taxonomic mess here, but um, what I was going to ask was about you guys actually did a study on what prey they might prefer. Yeah, this was a, a study that was led by a grad student at the time, Scott Getz. And uh, basically, these animals are in captivity for a while. Uh, so we had this kind of opportunity. There, okay, so let me back up even further. There's the Orient Center for Indigo Conservation. They're producing these indigo snakes for the releases. And so as they're hatching and raising these animals, there's dozens, if not hundreds, of indigo snakes in captivity, just waiting for somebody to do like these little behavioral studies. Even for a species that's well known, like the indigo, we actually don't know that much about it. So we went down there and we wanted to kind of figure out some natural history. We know they like to eat snakes, but is that just because we happen to see them eating snakes more often? You know, if you think about it, if they ate a mouse, boom, it's over. But a snake they is eat extremely fast. <laughs> if anyone's ever yeah. seen a dry marcon eat, it's almost. There you blood. go. But just because of a feature of a snake, it's a lot longer. So even if they're fast eaters, they're going to be slurping it down. Just by the odds, it's going to be a greater chance of us stumbling across that. So in any case, we wanted to know what their innate prey preferences were before they had even eaten anything, or maybe they just had a meal or two. So what we would do is take these Q-tips and rub it on a snake, rub it on a mouse, uh, rub it in water as a control. And we just put the Q-tip in front of these indigo snakes and we counted how many times they would flick their tongue. We don't exactly know what it means, but we kind of suspect if it flicks its tongue, it's interested. So if it flicks its tongue a lot, then it's relatively interested in that. And so we found that the the indigo snakes seem to prefer copperheads over rat snakes and mice. And that was pretty interesting, but we felt like we weren't, we didn't really know the whole story at that point. And so we said, you know, they liked copperheads, but is there really something specific about copperheads? Maybe they just like all vipers. Mm -hmm. uh, so we went back and we did it with a copperhead and a pygmy rattlesnake and a diamondback. I don't, I don't remember, unfortunately. But in any case, there wasn't any difference. So it just looks like they like vipers. Uh, but the other part is that after a year in captivity, they seem to lose that preference for snakes. And they started to like uh, the mice that they'd been eating. And so there's kind of a question as to whether we're best preparing these animals for a natural life in the wild if we're feeding them these mice. Really easy to get a hold of, but... Maybe they're missing something. And are they feeding just like we would, you know, European lab mice? Or are they feeding well, a different type of rodent? It, it is a mix. They do feed them a mix of things. But overall, most of it are the commercially available things, whether it's quail or mice, things like that. It's hard to produce, you know, enough corn snakes to feed a colony of indigos. So that'd be kind of hard to, that'd be tough to swallow for us, I think. And that's yeah. depressing. Yeah. I mean, I can be that hookup, but I need you guys. Uh, well, I don't want, I <laughs> I don't don't want, want to be. be. Yeah, I don't know who would want to be. Who would want to be? 
Um, okay. So ask and you shall receive. We have lots of questions. From oh, okay. Now. Um, oh, you're bringing it back. You're doing a lot of scrolling here. Yes, Uh-oh. yes. Well, the first one I know was, do you currently keep any reptiles? Wow, that's cool. How'd you do that? Yeah. It needs to be a sound effect, like the pine snake farting noise. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my dirty little secret is that I don't actually have any reptiles right now. You know, growing up, I used to catch everything. And the rule was I could keep it for two weeks before releasing it or before it escaped in the house, as in the case of many garter snakes. Um, Later in life, I had a corn snake for a while. But, you know, at this point in my life, I'm just focused on keeping myself fed and alive and happy. And I don't really want that responsibility. And when I really need that fix, I'll just walk down to Payne's Prairie or the swamp down here. You can see snakes uh, swimming around. So that's that's how I get my fix. Um, next question is from our friend Mike. He said, what does he think of Slowinskis? So that would be like Pantherophis Slowinskii or the what people thought were was a corn snake hybrid and an emery rat snake hybrid or maybe a gray rat and an emery. Who knows? But yeah. Uh, yeah, do you have any opinion on this? Rat snakes are tough. And uh, it's the same when we're talking about the quote unquote rat snakes, which are Pantherophis or the corn snakes, which are in the same genus. And this is just one of these groups of animals that really strain our conception of what a species is because they're different, but they're not that different and they can often interbreed. So I really like pass the buck when it comes to these rat snakes and corn snakes. I say, you know, it, it looks, it looks different. You can recognize it. So I, it makes sense to me that it has its own name, but whether it's a true species, I will leave that to the philosophers. <laughs> and then, I mean, and then you have, you know, black rat snakes and yellow rat snakes and Everglades rat snakes, all being, Those you know, ones. all being your, your Eastern rat snakes. And then you have, yeah. you have black rat snakes that are Western rat snakes, black rat snakes <laughs> that are Midland rat snakes, black rat snakes that are Eastern. Rat snakes. Uh, confusion. Yeah. I just call them all rat snake because <laughs> especially when people are asking me, what is the snake? And, you don't know where they are. It's like it could, like you said, it could be a black rat from here, or it's a rat snake. You're never wrong. Boom. Right, and I think that we oftentimes we're worried about what our peers are going to say sometimes instead of just simply and plainly stating an answer that would work for a normal person. Mm, yeah, the haters. The haters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like you're gonna you're gonna catch someone saying like Pantherophis you know, obsolete spilotes to a random part. Like they don't care, man. Yeah. You don't know what you're saying. <laughs> and it's just a recipe for an argument because in many cases you really can't look at it and tell where it's mm-hmm. from. And that's really the only way in many cases to tell one species from another is where you found it because you could have them in captivity and you hold them up and it's, it's really kind of murky and, and uh, as, as you alluded to, I'm sure there's been plenty of arguments about what's what. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah. You got the next question. Uh, next question. Darren was asking in relation to the indigos, how many um, are they releasing per year? Do you have any idea? The, the goal is to release 30 a year at both sites. However, it's really difficult to produce that many. So sometimes it's as few as 
10. For a few years in the Alabama release, there, there weren't any released, uh, but mm-hmm. it looks like things are wrapping up again. And um, uh, when the releases started, the goal was 300, which would be 10 years of 30 uh, snakes each year. But it's going to be it's going to be longer than that because we haven't hit that number at either site, not even close. And so what does that mean exactly, the percentage increase? So I'm guessing that since they've started releasing. Like once um, run through, I'm assuming he means like when you're checking back in, are you seeing mm-hmm. population increases after you've released them? Uh, what we do have is evidence of reproduction. But, you know, the mortality is probably like 50%. Mm. And so if 150 snakes have released, you got to knock off half immediately and maybe a few have reproduced but you really need to get to this critical peak before the population starts growing on its own so there's probably less snakes at each night at each site that have been released but over time we hope that trend will uh, reverse and that's even something that you cover a little bit in the book as far as you know taking snakes from someone's property and re-releasing them you're seeing a decrease in the the um and them living there's a fancy word <laughs> survival, for that. Survival. Like, survival there you go big words so um so what are what are they doing to kind of hamper some of those and make them uh, have the best chance to survive well one way is to keep them in captivity for a couple of years and get them larger the larger the snake is the fewer predators there are going to be that can mess with it so but we don't want to keep them in captivity so long that they're reaching sexual maturity. Uh, if they can breed, we want them to be doing that out there. Uh, in the first few years of the Auburn project, uh, they tried what's called a soft release, and they basically made these giant cages, try and get these snakes more comfortable in the area before they were released for real. Um, kind of mixed success, not sure if it was worth all of the effort, but Basically, the hope is if you throw enough snakes out there, enough will survive. They'll find enough females, keep them, uh, give them incentive to stay rather than go. I think it's just a matter of putting a lot of snakes out there, and that's that's kind of tricky. Right. You can only produce so many. <laughs> yeah. Or have the funds to produce so many. I'm sure that's, that's an issue. It ain't free. <laughs> that is for sure. Um. Mike also asked, would indigos and black pine share the same habitat in Alabama? Uh, Historically, yeah, I think so. Uh, Now, indigos only exist on Conecuh National Forest. And I think that's a little bit east of where the black pine border is. But they do both like that really open canopy longleaf pine forest. That's that's classic habitat for both species. So I imagine that historically they did overlap. Awesome. And I know Brian Holt has some amazing pictures of the black pines mm-hmm. down in Alabama where they actually, they integrate with the Southerns. And mm-hmm. it's like, uh, just people, people in captivity are all, if it's not black, it's not pure or something like that. But in, they're actually integrating in the wild, which I thought was super interesting. <laughs> go figure. There you go. Nature's too messy, like we said. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, and going back to the uh, smart people articles, um, what journals and publica- publications do you trust as resources for sound research? 
Yeah, with, with thousands of journals, this is kind of tricky. And what I go back on are, you know, the journals that I often read. And, you know, the top journals in my field are Conservation Biology, Journal for Pathology, Copia, Ecological Applications. These are the, the journals that have been around for years and years. The editorial board uh, are made up of people that you know and recognize in your field. Other of your colleagues are publishing in those journals. Uh, so that's kind of a, a good way to tell. If it's something that you, if it's a journal you've never heard of, you don't know anybody that's published in it before, that might be a clue that you should dig a little bit deeper about what, what this journal really is. And I mean, are there, at the end of the day, are there groups of people who carry the same philosophies and necessarily don't believe in one side's philosophy and vice versa? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can get scientific journals Really, well, with different standards, yeah. I mean, sometimes I will get requests to review, to serve as a peer review for a paper that is way outside of my area of expertise that I know nothing about. And so it's kind of easy for me to see how people can kind of just get these papers published without actually having somebody in their field reviewing it. It can get a little scary. Uh, as somebody in the field, I can tell the difference between a paper that's a little sketchy or a journal that's a little sketchy, but not everyone can especially when we're talking about the public, a paper's a paper, right? So it can get a little scary. Absolutely. And to sneak this in here, um, you are the executive director of the Alongside Wildlife Foundation. So could you talk a little bit of what that is and uh, how it came to be? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is a nonprofit charity that I formed a couple of years ago. A lot of the outreach and the science communication that I did, it was on my own time. Uh, a lot of people in my field say you should be doing this work, but it's not really, there's no really incentive to do it. So I wanted to create my own home for those kinds of activities. Um, and I've really been pleased with how it's grown uh, over the last two years or so. We started getting in donations and people can check out our website to learn more about what we do. Uh, but we started this grant program to kind of fund a lot of the projects. Again, same theme. These are things that we all say are important, but are just not prioritized for the funding agencies and institutions. So natural history studies, science communication studies, um, ways to live alongside wildlife and reduce human conflict. We've, we've, we're planning to give out, by the end of the year, it'll be uh, almost $25,000 to these projects around the world. Uh, so if people are um, interested in that kind of work, I, I hope you'll check us out. And what are the, I mean, it must be a struggle to get funding for anything snake related. Sure is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, there's funding from the states that often go to the state wildlife agencies for the management and the conservation. But when it comes to applied natural history or management or ecology, and you're an academic, that's a real challenge. Um, you know, genetics and molecular biology and that kind of stuff is a little bit more appealing uh, to funding agencies. But between you and me, that's not the kind of stuff that most people are interested in. They want to know, where can you find this? What does this eat? How big does this get? And that stuff just isn't funded. And I'm hoping the Alongside Wildlife Foundation can help fill that gap. So basically, it's like before we're even crawling, you know, we're not getting, you're not getting the, the funding to just figure out how the snake basically Exists. functions <laughs> yeah and you know that's not what they're looking for so therefore science is steered by what they're willing to fund 
That's true. And, you know, the molecular biology stuff, that's important. Uh, but I think maybe we've overcompensated and we've skipped over some of the basic building blocks, the natural history. That's the foundation of, of the world around us, as far as I'm concerned. And we don't know as much as many people would assume. Right. And is there anything that, uh, anything crazy, whether it's natural, uh, whether it's native species here in North America or something that you really wanted to research, but you haven't been able to, whether it's an animal or a certain. Uh... Yeah. I'm really fascinated by rainbow snakes. What a cool creature. Not only do they look beautiful, but they're real unique too. They're big. They can get five, six feet long. They have these nests. They stay with their eggs, which is pretty unusual in North America. The mud snakes do it too. But these things are so secretive, really hard to study. We know virtually nothing about them. We think they're in decline, and it might be because American eels are declining, and that's what they eat. Mm. But it's just really impossible to – I don't think there's ever been a radio telemetry study of rainbow snakes. Really big opportunity for somebody to learn a lot about a cool creature in our own backyards. So now that you're working in Florida, is that on the table or are you not, or you can, can you not? I'm keeping an eye out. Let me put it that way. They're so secretive and hard to come by that I don't know that you could really plan to go and do a study, but you can keep track of observations and, and over time accumulate a database that you could look at for trends. So yeah, we can try. And that's, that's something that I didn't know. I didn't know actually existed. You had talked a little bit about, you know, monitoring king snake populations. Yeah. So it's like, what is this database? And is it just a bunch of scientists pulled together to get reliable data and use it, you know, at their will? Yeah, pretty much. You know, there's all these different studies going on. and It's not a giant field, but people are doing their own thing. We're not always communicating. Uh, but one thing that we had, many of us had in common is that we were using a similar kind of snake trap. And so what I did is I tried to get everybody together communicating and create a database and pool everything together and use that database to answer some large-scale questions that we weren't able to do just by looking at our own little studies. Um, so I did publish a few papers, including including the king snake one that you're mentioning. And so what do you believe at this moment you saw, well, you saw that king snake populations went down, copperhead populations went up. Is that correlation? What is going on there? What do you think? I don't know because you, you make a really good point. The fact that snakes only feed, you know, maybe once a week at the very most. That's in captivity and like clockwork. Yeah. So I could imagine it would be very hard to decimate populations of it's any nice, animal, whether yeah. it's a king snake, copperhead, you know, doing it one at a time, you know, you know, maybe they can feed for eight months, 10 months out of the year at the very most. And I think you'd be hard pressed <laughs> to have the, yeah. them decimate the population there. Yeah. If you were, picking a couple species that you wanted to select to show that there was some kind of competition or um, predator-prey dynamics going on, snakes would probably be the last thing that you would pick. <laughs> um, but if you look at them over the long term at a large enough scale, there are some intriguing patterns that are consistent with the idea that they're affecting each other's populations. But we just don't know that for a fact. But 
I, I'm convinced that it's worth studying more. And that's more than I was willing to say before I started that study. And does it, I mean, does it have anything to do with the fact that the Copperhead is like, at least when I found them in Texas, they were mainly pretty stationary, pretty almost fossorial in the way that I would always find them under logs and stuff like that. And a king snake, I believe, would forage a little bit more, if not, you know, more so during the day, more diurnal than a than a copperhead. Could it just be their natural behavior? The copperhead lends itself better to the modern environment in a way and, you know, conflicts with people? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) 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 Certainly, if you ask people what snake do they find in their backyard most often, they're probably going to say copperheads. And often they're true. That's true. These animals do do pretty well in green areas and suburban areas. They're a habitat generalist, so they can live in lots of different kinds of uh, forests and you know, fields, things like that. But the king snake is also kind of a generalist. And so I'm not sure if we can look at the habitat changes and say, this is why king snakes are declining and why copperheads are going up. Um, but it, it is a, it is a potential. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder, you know, there's too many, too many factors. And I could imagine that, I don't know. I always go towards, the humans what are we doing to to make that change because as you said in the 70s and 80s it seemed you know the king snakes were the primary animal in that area the primary snake in that area and now it's the copperheads and why has that changed since the 70s and 80s things don't happen that drastically in such a short amount of time unless humans mess with it yeah one way or another and it could be that the indigo snakes in uh, disappeared and we're talking about uh southwest <laughs> southeast alabama now uh, it could be that the indigo snakes disappeared because of our activity and their snake eaters we know that maybe that's why the copperhead started to increase and then the decline of the king snakes just further um exacerbated that uh but we don't know why the king snakes are declining either it could be a disease that's you know if you ask me to pick a the most likely explanation, that's probably what I go to. But that's a big mystery, too. That's the kind of thing that we should be pouring money into. Why are these big, charismatic species blinking out in the southeastern United States, king snakes? And it'd be a global priority if I was in charge, but I'm not. <laughs> We're just figuring it out in this podcast instead of, instead of uh, the National Science Foundation. Yeah, I think it's crazy that we are... We're so focused on saving all these different environments, but we don't look in our own backyard and look at like the longleaf pines and see how can we conserve that ecosystem, which is so incredibly important throughout, you know, the whole eastern half of the United States almost. Sure. And to be clear, there are people and organizations working on it, but it's just not on the public consciousness like a panda is, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like there's, pl- there's plenty of people who are aware of it, but they happen to be the people who... So who's going to put together the Sarah McLaughlin, McLaughlin commercial? It's all just like PR, right? All of these it's like, animals that we care about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think everybody's listening today is motivated. They're enthusiastic. They're going to go out and they're going to check out the Longleaf Alliance and uh, support that organization. There you go. Go check them out. And with that, we have kept you slightly over um, your one hour mark, but I think in this one hour, we have learned 
a lot. I've learned a lot. And I think um, for people to learn more, they should definitely check out your book. Read the book. And we can only say, you know, we're going to continue to say like this book really is written for everyone. Um, just the way that you speak and the way that the words that you choose to use, I think, can appeal to such a wide range of people in addition to. And it's also it's not it's not boring to people who don't know the science behind it. And it's not boring for people who it's do know the dull. science right, behind it, right. which is, fun, you know, like that's like the it, blurb. That's the blurb that's going on the second edition. Not boring. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I mean, sometimes, sometimes with snake books, that could be, you know, too, too the biggest complicated for, too complicated for some, too simple for others. And I feel like yours kind of hits the sweet spot. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I hope everybody likes it. You can find it on Amazon or wherever else you get books. And if you want a signed copy, you can follow the link on my website, David A. Steen. But like I guess you mentioned, I'm online a lot. I love to answer people's questions alongside Wild on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me on Facebook. And this was yeah. a lot of fun. So if we didn't get to answer your question today, definitely reach out to him um, and ask him all those questions. I know a lot of people in the chat still have more questions about indigos. And they could talk about indigos for three hours. Oh, yeah. Once uh, you say the word indigo, everyone's on it. buzzword. Oh, pile on. <laughs> Hoser or indigo? Those are the, <laughs> the hot <on>. topics. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, thanks so much for writing this book and coming on to talk about it and basically just spreading the positive light for snakes. And well, I appreciate it. I could say the same for you all. Thanks for this podcast and the opportunity to chat. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And if you guys want to check us out, Facebook, Poor City Pythons, Instagram, all that good stuff, poorcitypythons.com. We have t-shirts available. Spaghettisburg, PA. So, someone's going to really think it's called that. Some not, well, you, not geographical person is going to think it's called Spaghetti. We do have a lot of weird names like Spotsylvania or something. Yes. So. so let's say the real name. Okay. Well, you know, Gettysburg. I think you guys got that. Mm, there's someone out there who doesn't. <laughs> yeah, well i weep for them so um this weekend you can check us out it's a two-day show right saturday sunday oh oh six so one day show saturday <laughs> see you then don't ask us any silly questions because you listen to this podcast and you bought no, the we're, book we're, we're bringing the book we're bringing the book That's I'm gonna it. Point, someone's gonna steal our copy i'm though. gonna point to passages i'm gonna look up the pages and point to it now we don't get many <laughs> cotton mouth water moccasin questions but still there's definitely uh passages in this book we can point out to people yeah. If you're in Spaghettisburg, water moccasins are not native. So it wasn't a water moccasin. All right. So um, anything clear. else? I think we covered. So this is a long outro. David, yeah, is we... there anything else you would like to say before we for reals end it? For reals. No, this was a lot of fun. That's all. Appreciate it. Cool. Thank you, everybody, for watching. <laughs> we will see you next week. Later. <laughs>